you would turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, we're going to read Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, last week we talked about chapter 1 and 2, and so this week we're going to finish up the, um, the book here. So we'll start with reading the word Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigeyonoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the, light, like the sunlight. He has raised flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan on the distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your, ang- was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with your own spears the head of, the, of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord." I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. So there is the end of the book of Habakkuk, and it is one, it's a song composed by Habakkuk to show us his response to the conversation that he had with God earlier. If you were here last week, uh, you know, we talked about chapter 1 and 2, and we saw that there was a conversation taking place between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk had a complaint. He had some questions to ask. Why questions? How long questions? He saw all this evil around him and says, God, you're not doing anything about it. Why not? How long do I have to endure here? And God said, you know what? I am already doing something about it. There's stuff going on here that you're not seeing right now. But I am already at work, and I am going to do 
what I promised back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is to bring in a nation that you don't know about to come and take the people into exile. And then Habakkuk was not satisfied. He said, well, God, okay, so you have appointed this nation, but this doesn't really work because you're pure. This nation is an evil nation. They're worse than we are. So how can you use a worse nation to punish us? We, we have some righteous people here. And then God told him a couple of things in chapter 2. He said, one, you must live by faith. You must trust me to work this out. He also said that this other nation, the Chaldeans, they're also going to be judged and destroyed. And God said that in the end, the purpose of everything he does is that everyone would know his glory. So that's where we left off last week. God gave Habakkuk these things, and now in this psalm, in this prayer, this song, we see Habakkuk's response of faith. So God told him, if you look back in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith. And Habakkuk now puts this psalm in for us because he responded in faith. And what we will learn in this psalm is three things about what it means to live by faith or to respond in faith to what God is doing. Um, we will see that it means asking for God's mercy. We'll see that it means that we understand God in his power and his glory. And thirdly, that it means rejoicing in God no matter what the circumstances are. So the first, the first point that it means asking God for his mercy comes out here in the first two verses. So let's read those again. It starts with the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. Now, we don't really know what that word means. It's some musical term, some poetical term that whoever was singing it at the time would have known, okay, is this tune or this kind of mood? We don't really know what it means, but it's, it tells us it's a song that Habakkuk writes for people to sing. And he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's how Habakkuk starts his prayer. And it may sound a little bit unusual because he says, I've heard the report and I fear. Now, what, what is this report that he has heard? Uh, we'll get some more details here in the rest of the psalm. But what it, it, what it kind of summarizes is what God did during the time of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. So Habakkuk thinks back of all these powerful things that God did for his nation at the time. And then he says, thinking back of all these things, and now I fear. And why does he fear? It is because this power of God that God unleashed on the Egyptians and on the other nations that lived in Canaan, God says, you know, this time the tables are kind of turned. So whereas previously the Israelites came in and conquered the other nations, now the Chaldeans are going to come in and conquer the Jews. And so Habakkuk realizes this power of God, and he's, he's not liking it. He fears because of this power that God t told him he's going to unleash. But that's not where it stops, because he then says, revive your work in the midst of the years. So he's not just saying, oh, I fear, and this is the end of it. No, he says, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm asking you to work, to do what you told me to do. He says, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of years, make it known. So he wants God to do what God told him earlier in chapter 1 and 2, 
so that God can make his power known again to the people. And then the last sentence here is probably the most significant one of this first section. He says, it kind of summarizes this work of God, and then he says, in wrath, remember mercy. So he knows there's, God's going to pour out some wrath, but he also knows that God is merciful, and so he asks God, in the midst of all of this that you're going to do, be merciful, because I know you are. Now the word wrath is something we need to, in order to understand God's mercy, we first need to understand God's wrath. If we don't understand God's wrath, we do not, we cannot have a clear grasp of what God's mercy is. And this concept of God's wrath is not a very popular concept maybe to talk about or read about. We don't really go there very often. But there was a time in history where there was a lot of preaching, a lot of talking, a lot of teaching going on on the wrath of God. Um, if the name Jonathan Edwards means something to you, he was a preacher in New England in the 18th century. He preached during a time that was called the Great Awakening, when many people, you know, many people would say, I'm a Christian, they would sit in their churches, but they did not understand the gospel. They did not understand sin, punishment, and salvation. And so he preached probably the most famous sermon preached on this continent called um, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And he preached that to show people just in what kind of danger they are if, if they are subject to God's wrath. And let me just read you a little bit out of that sermon just to kind of see how he described that and how, how he helped people kind of visualize what God would do. Um, he says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, there's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. That's pretty powerful stuff there. And you can imagine that this sermon definitely stuck with people. And what he is saying is that God, first of all, would be right to punish every one of us right this second, because we all deserve punishment for our sins. We all deserve his wrath. And he says, you know, we don't think about this necessarily, but even, for, even if you do not believe in Jesus, you are now experiencing God's mercy by the simple fact that you're here. God is in his right for you to be in hell right now. That's what you deserve. But he's saying, God is still having you here, and that is his mercy. Now, we may say, well, you know, this, is, this was good for the 18th century, this was good for you know, Habakkuk in the Old Testament, but New Testament God, there's no wrath in the New Testament. 
Well, there we, we are wrong. Obviously, God is the same, but wrath is also very important, a very important concept in the New Testament. If we look at the book of Romans, which is Paul's explanation of the gospel to a church that he has never visited, there's a couple of times that he refers to God's wrath, and they are very key points. And if you, if you look at me, with me at Romans chapter 1, last, time we, last week we saw that Habakkuk 2, 4, that verse about the righteous live by faith, Paul quotes it in Romans 1, 17. As we said, you know, chapter 1, 16 and 17, is Paul's summary of the whole letter, of the whole gospel, and he quotes this verse. And then the very next verse, Paul starts explaining this whole gospel, and he takes nine chapters to explain it. But he starts right here. If you look in verse 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So everyone, the gospel starts with this message that everyone is subject to the wrath of God. Why is that? Because everyone knows enough to know that God should be worshipped. Now, how do we know that everyone knows enough to know that God should be worshipped? Well, because tells us, God tells us so. He says, I have made myself clear enough to everyone to know that I'm the creator God who should be worshipped. And everyone has turned away. Everyone suppresses this truth of this creator God who should be worshipped and if you read the rest of Romans chapter 1, everyone has turned away to worship something else. So that's why everyone deserves his wrath. No one is without excuse. If you remember last week, the, the end of chapter 2 in Habakkuk, he says uh, that all will be still before God when he judges. So no one has any excuse. No one has any... Now we can't say, oh God, we didn't really know you. We didn't know you should be worshipped. We did. God says he has shown us enough. But of course, that doesn't, that doesn't save, but it is enough for God to condemn every single person. But Paul, after explaining sin here in the first three chapters, uh, in chapter 5, he comes back to the concept of God's wrath. So in chapter 5, starting in verse 6, let me read from verse 6 to verse 11, because here Paul kind of gives a solution to, to the, this problem that we have with the wrath of God. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And we often use this word, I'm saved, right? That's a very popular term we throw around, said, are you saved? I'm saved. Let's all be saved. And then we ask, well, what are we saved from? And if we ask Paul, he says what we are saved from, you know, we will often say our sins or things like that, but Paul says we are saved from the wrath of God. 
And if you look at it, it's actually a future event. If you look at the verb here, we shall be saved from the wrath of God because it will be unleashed on the day of judgment. And because Jesus died for us and we are justified, we will be saved from that wrath. And that's God's mercy to us. Now, we wouldn't understand that mercy if we didn't first understand chapter 1, that the wrath of God is for all of us. And as Johnson Edwards said, God would be perfectly in his right to have us all in hell right now. But in his mercy, first of all, we have a chance to be here. So we, we experience it right now by being here, and he also gives us the opportunity to experience that mercy forever if we believe in Jesus. So everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not, experiences God's mercy right now. But only those who believe in Jesus are going to experience that mercy forever. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then you have some mercy right now, but then there will be the wrath of God on the day that he judges everyone. And you can't stand there and say, oh, I didn't really know, because God has made it clear. He says you knew more than enough to be experiencing his wrath. Now, a question may come up then, and this um, kind of came up from last sermon. We read Deuteronomy 28 last time, where God was talking about this wrath and this punishment that was going to come, and he actually used the term that he... Actually, let me just read the verse to you. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. So does God rejoice and delight in bringing down his wrath and bringing destruction? This is a big question. Because there's other verses as well. For example, Ezekiel 33:11, where it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. So God... In Deuteronomy, it says he delights in, in bringing destruction. Here in Ezekiel, it says he does not delight in the death of anyone. So it's got a little confused there. No, right? We know God is not confused. We know God is perfect. And for us to understand it may be a little bit hard, but on the other hand, it may actually be really, really easy. Because, um, and um, I was listening to John Piper and what he had to say on it. He said, you know, when we think about the emotions of God, they must be incredibly complicated. Now just think about your own emotions. There are many events in our lives that we are delighted about, but there may also be some hesitation. Think of um, maybe when, when, when your oldest kid goes off to college. It's exciting. You want them to do well. But at the other hand, they're not leaving you. You're kind of sending them out on their own. So there's, there, it's a joyful event, but there are some other emotions as well. And so when we look at the emotions of God, it may, again, not, it's complex, and we may not understand it fully, but what we can see is God does not delight in the death and the destruction of any of his creatures. That's what Ezekiel tells us. But God delights in bringing his character and his judgment 
and in being glorified through both those who are saved through his mercy and those who experience his wrath. Because if you look at Romans 9, it says he patiently bears vessels of wrath for the day of destruction. So God does not want anyone to be destroyed, and that's what we see. You know, we know God wants everyone to be saved. But on the other hand, he also wants more than anything else for him to be glorified. And for some people, the glory will be brought to him through their salvation. And for some people who do not believe, God will be glorified through their punishment. Because God shows his holiness and his wrath through that. Now the call from Habakkuk should be our call as well, saying, God, we know your wrath is coming, but please remember mercy. And how appropriate it is that Paul quotes this verse about faith from Habakkuk, because we see that the kind of faith Habakkuk has, the kind of faith that Paul points us to in Romans, is the kind of faith that says, God, please, we count on your mercy. We know we can't do it ourselves, as we heard from, from Goose and Regan. We... We count on your mercy. That's the only thing we can, we can rely on to be saved from your wrath. So that's the first thing that Habakkuk teaches us here about living by faith is to trust in God's mercy even in the midst of the wrath that's coming. Then the second thing he tells us about faith is that it understands God's power and glory. Now this is, you know, if we, if we look at the next part of his song from verse 3 to verse 15... It's very picturesque, very vivid language. So, you know, as we go through this, if you want to close your eyes to kind of imagine what this would look like, I won't hold it against you. I won't be thinking that you're sleeping unless you start snoring. But it's a picture of God coming in his power. And I said earlier, it looks like what Habakkuk is talking about is the time of the Exodus when Israel saw God in his power and Moses actually got to see the back of God's glory and then the subsequent events of the conquest of Canaan. Um, let's look at the first few verses, which is the description of what God is like. It says, God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Mount Paran is another name for the, the area around Sinai, that desert wilderness area. So it, he's talking here about God coming from Mount Sinai, which is where Israel encountered him and got the Ten Commandments and the law. Uh, and his splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, and his rays flashing from his hands, and there is the hiding of his power. So these are all, all kind of things that the Israelites saw. There was dark clouds, there were, was lightning, all those things were there, and they saw the radiance on the face of Moses, because the Israelites said, we don't want to see this God, we are scared of him. And so that's why it says the hiding of his power, because only Moses ended up getting to see God there. Uh, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him in verse 5, reference to the, the plagues that I Egypt experienced, as well as sometimes when Israel turned away from God, they got to experience those plagues as well. Uh, happy for them. And then, so God, God, it says God is there on that mountain, but then the picture Habakkuk is painting here is that God's actually going to come down from that mountain and through Israel, he is going to wage war against these nations. And the rest of the 
the rest of that, pa that, that part there talks about how God coming down, God destroying the nations in Canaan through the Israelites. And we won't read all the verses here for the sake of time, but that's when, when Habakkuk said in verse 2, this is the report I heard, this is what he's thinking about, that time when God showed his power. And at that time, if we read in verse 13, it was for the salvation of his people. It was for the sake of his nation Israel. They would be saved from Egypt and from the enemies in the land of Canaan. But now Habakkuk remembers it, and now he knows it's not going to be for good for most of the people of Israel, for most of the people in Judah. And I encourage you to read through this passage again and just, like I said, just kind of picture this and see what, what Habakkuk is really trying to do here with these words to really show us God's power. Um, so faith relies, asks God for his mercy. It sees God in his power. So we don't want to kind of belittle God's power there and God's wrath. We need to see those things. And then the third thing we see in the song here, in the psalm, and the last couple of verses talk about this, is that um, faith rejoices in God no matter what the circumstances. So in verse 16, Habakkuk summarizes that description of God's power. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sounds of my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. So he goes back to that theme of fear that he started in verse 2. He said, I've heard a report about you and I fear. So now he's given us the report and he again says, I fear. And he kind of expands on that in, with four different ways of basically saying I fear. If you remember, we said you know, the Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme with sounds, they rhyme with meaning. So these sentences all are part of what Habakkuk says he's experiencing because he knows the power of God. And then he says, because I, made, may, I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Now this verse is translated slightly differently in some different versions. For example, the, the, the English Standard Version says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver as a sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So the, the New American Standard says he is waiting quietly for the day of distress, which is the same as the day that the Chaldeans will come to invade. The English Standard Version, some other translations said um, that he will quietly wait for distress to come upon the people who will invade Judah. Now in the Hebrew, both are fair possibilities, and so it's just a, a matter of interpretation of, of which translation we, we think would fit better. Uh, personally, I think the NASB is probably the better choice um, because, again, it, it, it applies that Hebrew parallelism, that poetry. So it says, the day of distress, which is the same as or similar to the day that the country will be invaded. Um, and secondly, God specifically told Habakkuk in chapter 1, this is going to happen in your day. You are going to see the Chaldeans come in and take your people into exile. God never said anything about Habakkuk seeing the destruction of the Chaldeans, which he did not see because it came 70 years later. And so both from the context and the Hebrew structure, most likely Habakkuk is talking about how he's quietly going to have to wait for this 
evil nation to come in and conquer his country. And then he gives a description in verses 17 of what it's going to be like when the Chaldeans are going to come in. It's not going to be fun. There's not going to be any figs. There's no fruit. There's no olives. There's no produce. There's no flock. And there's no cattle. Because they will come in and they'll take everything out. They were not a fun nation. It was like, okay, we're your boss now, but you can keep everything you have. They were... You know, if, you're, if you remember the description from last week, they would come in, they would take everything out, including most of the powerful people, and they would keep it all for themselves. And so Habakkuk, as he asks God to work according to what God told him, he knows very well that what he's asking from God is something that's not going to be fun for him. He knows that what God is going to do is going to hurt him badly. He's going to be without food, probably without most people he knows. And remember, this is not because of his own sin. Habakkuk is one of the righteous. So he is going to experience the consequences of other people's sin. And he is going to suffer from it, majorly. But then his, his mood, his, his faith really kicks in here in verse 18. He said, Yet... I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So he says, in spite of all of this, he rejoices in God. And specifically, the God of his salvation. So he knows that in spite of everything that's going to happen, and he's going to lose everything, he's still going to have God who is going to be the God of his salvation. And he actually says that God will be his strength. There will be no more food. There will be no more people. There will be no temple to be his strength. Because the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are going to destroy the temple and the whole sacrificial system set up. So none of these things will be there for Habakkuk to trust in. All he has left is God. He says, God is my strength, and the only reason that's so is because there's nothing else to be his strength. And then he gives, there's one more sentence there that you may think it's kind of an afterthought, but it's probably one of the most important sentences in this, in this chapter. It says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments, because it, it says that this passage is only meant for Paul as our choir director, and we don't have to worry about it. Right, Paul? No. As Paul can probably tell you, the ministry of the choir is not to encourage the choir director. It probably may discourage the choir director more than encourage him sometimes. <laughs> but the ministry of the choir is for the sake of the whole congregation. And so when Habakkuk says, this is a song written, and here are my instructions for the choir director on the stringed instrument, it means that he is not saying, oh, this is my personal confession of faith because I'm the righteous person here. He's saying, this is a song I'm writing for all of you because we should all have this faith response to what God is saying. And so this, this one sentence shows that this is something, this is a response, this is a faith that we should all have. And Paul again echoes that in Romans chapter 1 when he quotes his verse and says, this is the gospel. This is, this is that we live by faith. 
Now, you may feel that you're in a situation like Habakkuk's right now, a situation where everything that you like, everything that you want, everything that you trust in is kind of taken away, whether through something you did or whether it's because something that someone else did, whether it's a consequence of someone else's sin or just stuff happening that no one can really do anything about. When everything is gone, Habakkuk encourages us and tells us, you know, we have God to rely on. And Habakkuk knows that in his situation, everything is going to be gone. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't experience it right here. Right here, he's still, you know, there's Judah is still a nation, and they still have food, they still have everything they need. But there's going to come a day in his life when everything is going to be gone. And in that day, his response of faith is one that's going to rejoice in God even though he has nothing else left. So the Song of Habakkuk teaches us three things about faith. It teaches us in the first two verses that faith relies and asks for God's mercy because that's the only way for us to be saved. To, to, for him to be the God of our salvation, we have to rely on his mercy. And then... Faith understands God's power and glory. It understands that God is a God that comes down in wrath on all sin and all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And thirdly, faith means you can rejoice in God no matter the circumstance. No matter what happens, no matter what we have, that is, that is what that response of faith, that life of faith, that living by faith that Paul in the New Testament calls us to do. This is how Habakkuk exemplifies that faith. Um, so I don't know where you are in your life. If you are at a place where you need God's mercy because you have not had that forgiveness of sins, if so, heed those words of Jonathan Edwards. God's wrath is a terrible thing to face. And the only way to get out of it is the forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Because as we saw in Romans, he offered Jesus as a sacrifice while we were still his enemies. We weren't his friends who were just kind of estranged. We were his enemies. And God reached out and said, come back. I provide the way. That's God's mercy in the midst of wrath. Or maybe you're in a situation where you've kind of downplayed God and said, you know, God, I know you're out there. I know I know you'd send Jesus to die, and I've, I've, I've confessed my sins, I believe in Jesus, but we may not have a clear picture of, of who God is and how we need to make sure we have that understanding that God is the God who is infinitely bigger than the whole universe. This earth is just a little speck of dust, and we are little specks of dust living on this speck of dust. God is so much bigger than anything we can ever imagine, so much more powerful and so much more full of goodness and mercy than we can ever understand or comprehend. And in order for us to live in a right relationship, a right way with God, we need to make sure we, we know who He is. We don't create God in our own image, but we read these words of Habakkuk and others of just the power, the glory, the awesomeness of God. Um, and then third, the rejoice no matter what the circumstances. And this can apply to all of us at any time. We all go through things in life when we have a choice. Are we going to be like Habakkuk was in the beginning and complain and say, why, you're not doing anything, how long? 
Or are we going to be like Habakkuk has now become, a changed man who lives by faith and who says, I know it's going to be bad, God. I know they're going to come. I know they're going to take everything away, but I'm going to rejoice in you no matter what. And when God takes away everything we have, that's when we know what our faith is like. When everything else that we can trust in is gone, that's when, that's when our faith will show and whether it's whether we rejoice and, and find God to be our strength or not. So whatever your situation is, that's the encouragement from Habakkuk here is that, that change that from how long and I don't like this and this is not right, this is not who you are, God, to yes, God, no matter what you do, no matter what's going to come my way, you are my God, you are my strength, you are my salvation, and that's all I need. Um, so I hope this, this is an encouragement to you in whatever situation you're going through here from the book of Habakkuk. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much that you are our God and that we are your people. Thank you that you are a holy and righteous God who cannot stand evil. Because if that wasn't so, there would be no hope for this world to ever be a good place. Father, we thank you for your mercy. That while we were enemies, you sent your son to die and rise again. Thank you that we experience your mercy right now and we can experience your mercy for eternity by trusting him. And Father, we pray for whatever the situation is right now, Father. Pray that you would help us to rejoice in you when everything else fails, to trust in you and to hold on to you and to glorify you because you are our God of salvation. And Father, we pray that as a church, as Habakkuk said, this is something for the whole congregation. We would encourage one another to, to live by this faith that Habakkuk has uh, exemplified here. Amen.